0: rta.ie/drama on one Drama on One Next on Drama on One Creatives in Conversation In the words of Seamus Heaney if a poem is any good you can repeat it to yourself as if it were written by somebody else the completeness frees you from it and it from you that weave of mastery and modesty characterized Seamus Heaney's appearances on radio and especially his rattlebag public interview on the occasion of his 65th birthday now, as we approach his 10th anniversary, here's another chance to hear Seamus in conversation with Miles Dungan in an interview recorded at the Pavilion Theatre in Dun in April 2004.
1: I would like to start with your early poetic influences. You've written that you found Eliot magical but a little bit frightening when you were a teenager and that Gerald Manley Hopkins was more to your taste initially. What, what did you identify in Hopkins that appealed to you?
2: Well, Hopkins rang the bell, I suppose. Uh, I, the, the noises he made, to put it at its simplest. I said somewhere writing about Hopkins, and I meant it, it was like getting uh, goose flesh. Uh, there were certain combinations of words that wakened me up. So it, it's very hard to uh, give other e- equivalents in, in conversational terms for, for that nervous energy. I remember in one of my first lectures at Queen's University, the lecturer was talking about style. Very few people talk about style anymore. It's kind of passed out. Discourse has come in and style has gone out. <laughs> but um, he quoted Joseph Conrad. I've never found the phrase in Conrad, but I believe Conrad could have written it all right. He said that Conrad said that style was nervous energy translated into phrases. Well, when I read Hawkins it was phrases translated into nervous energy. And that was just, I came alive to it.
1: And at what point then, as a teenager, did you begin to find Eliot less intimidating?
2: Well, I didn't find Eliot less intimidating as a teenager. I mean, I, I, I was a sixth former doing the poetry track of The Scholarship mm. Boy, and I gradually came to know the the shape of, the received history of the shape of English literature. And I mean, I mean English literature because my, my first grounding, my first track into The literate world was via English classes and and taking English literature and English language at Queens. And in a sense, up until my mid-twenties, when I was beginning to teach in the university, teach English, teach English in a college, I was on that track. And in a way, from 25 to 35, I reoriented myself towards Irish writing, read Yeats in a different way and read Joyce and retilted the uh, scanning devices towards towards ireland but i don't know the 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 eliot thing i i read him because he was if you if you weren't uh, uh, considering Elliot, you weren't in the game in those days but i couldn't quite understand uh, say a poem like ash wednesday i was looking for arguments and sense in it that I couldn't find. And one of the most panicky half hours I ever spent in my life was as, not as a student, but as a lecturer in Queen's University around about 1967 or 8, talking about Ice Wednesday for half an hour <laughs> and not really knowing what to say. <laughs> uh, then I think an important moment in all that was hearing Elliot read, and more particularly hearing a man called Robert Spate, an actor, read the Four Quartets. And the oral. The pacification of sitting listening for an hour. And I sat actually with two biochemists. They weren't, they weren't literature students, they were kind of. Uh, was a biochemist called Pat O'Hare from, fr- from Galway and Jimmy Dunleavy. They were both in Queens. And they had bought uh, Elliot's four quartets. And I remember sitting with them, attending to this for the best part of an hour. Very important experience. Time past and time present are both perhaps contained in time future. So the mesmeric effect of that voice calmed me and said, don't worry too much. You've got something there.
1: When did you begin, then, to find your own voice as a poet?
2: Still at it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was was lucky that uh, something wakened up in me through reading. I mean, reading brought me alive, and then I, I found that I could bring myself alive sometimes through writing. And uh, I wobbled to and fro. I don't know quite. I, I thought that when I, I've said this so often, I, I, I kind of still believe it, but it's been said often by me. It was when I wrote this poem, Digging, that I felt I was onto a sound. I'd come onto a beam. I had got the wedge into a grain, and the grain was splitting open right down. The right way. And that had to do with the, the fact that my own voice, somehow, I mean my physical voice, the the sound and cadences and stresses that I would have made speaking, somehow, when I looked and listened to what was on the page, it, it was there. But that's not the only way to write, of course. I mean, I think uh, you are, you are, you might pretend to have a natural voice in your writing, but it's, it's a written voice. And you have to make up the way you sound like yourself on the page. But that, that happened uh, right about 1964, 63,
1: 64. And did you write poetry in a Derry accent as you started out, in, in that voice, and has that accent changed at all over the years?
2: I don't think it has changed, no, I don't think the accent has changed. Uh, maybe it's not quite accent, uh, it's uh, your, the pitch of your voice, the, the stresses of it, the, the run of it, your um, your your. You're I mean, in the beginning, I I did some quatrains. I just didn't do free verse. You don't, it don't. If you say you're writing in your own voice and for your own voice, it doesn't mean that you aren't engaging with the traditional artificial forms, the made-up forms of uh, European poetry or English poetry. You can get your own voice into. You have to get your own voice into the shapes. Um, and for me. The instructor in that area was uh, robert frost who who is a master of running the the cadence of natural speech uh, across the uh, across the shapes the The image I used to come up with sometimes was that it was like running vines over a trellis. you had a trellis there and a vine there. The image John McGarn once used to me. he said, "You can have the cage, but unless you have the bird, it's not much good <laughs> so. So in a sense, your, your voice is hopefully a bird and you can fill the cage with a bit of song.
1: You called your second collection Door Into the Dark, though there is no poem of that title in the book. Is that how you see the poetic imagination, something that can can bring you to dark places within yourself?
2: Well, th- that title arrived by accident, happy accident, which is one definition of poetry. A little... You have to surprise yourself and it surprises you. Thank God, that's the business. And I, I, I had this... Poem about a forge, uh, Barney Devlin's forge, which is still there, and Barney luckily is still there himself. Not as often in the forge as he used to be, but the phrase "all I know is a door into the dark" was a, was a report on the facts of the matter for many many years. As I walked past that door, then I heard the ring, the ding of the bell, the ding of the anvil. You would hear it actually from the house. From it was about a mile up the road, but you know, in certain conditions, the ring of that anvil would come over the fields. So, so the phrase has a terrific resonance, and it, "Born to the Dark," sounded like a title, but it, it did. Um, it, it corresponded to notions of what, poetic imagination is—the myth of, you know, uh, the unconscious delivering what is prepared for in there, and that idea that, that the shape is prepared in the dark, ready to be brought out, co- coincided nicely with the, what goes on in a forge, the shaping and so on. I mean, there is an idea, a romantic idea, I suppose. Well, it's not just romantic; it's as old, in some ways, European thinking about what poetry is. You use the muse; you call it the muse in one area; you call it the unconscious in another. That something, your social self, you get below the, you get below the social ca- capacities. You get below your executive self. You get into some dream strata or unconscious strata or. Whatever, or the muse speaks through you, or whatever. It's not your, if poetry can't dodge your your capable interview self (laughs) and get into something different or unexpected, I think it has lost its energy.
1: Now, if, if the voice of Death of a Naturalist, your first collection, was a personal and private one, at what point did you begin to acquire a more public voice and to address yourself to, for example, the political situation which was developing at that time in the 60s in Northern Ireland?
2: Well, this is a nice question. It's very hard to talk about it thoroughly. I mean, I could talk about individual poems. Address yourself to the political situation. In a way, in my first book, the fact that it was written by somebody called Seamus, uh, out of Northern Ireland, published in England, was an address to the to the to the political situation. You know, here's here's this fellow called Seamus, published in London. What right? By what right? <laughs> I think stealth in politics, no, in political life, in the yakety yak of political discourse, there's no point in stealth. But in the real action, people, you don't change populations. I mean, voters. They, uh, what do you call them? The, you know, on the on the hustings or canvassing. The idea is that you, ch- if you change the government, you know, you change the population. the The way in which poetry works is with the individual, the secret crevices of individual consciousness, and uh, it very very small changes in single individual people. If it goes on long enough, and it is uh, happens uh, for long enough among people. You move from a set of autobiographical secrets to something like a cultural, a cultural moment. And I think that's the way poetry works. And so I would say that the first book was not apolitical. I mean, it didn't address itself to political effects. Co- things. Nevertheless, there was a poem in it called Docker, which begins that fist would drop. There's a poem, a stanza about sectarian Belfast Actually, this was a shipyard worker. It just so shows you so f- how far I was outside Belfast culture, specifically Belfast culture. This, this man I knew would have dropped a hammer in his timer. Maybe not really, but he, was, he belonged to that sectarian shipyard culture. And uh, he put the wind up me. I mean, I just knew that somebody called Seamus wouldn't be welcome at his table. And I, I wrote the poem. I called it Docker, but somebody told me afterwards the Dockers were the Catholics in the... Sh- you know, the Dockers <laughs> were... The dockers worked on the docks. The shipyard workers were the sectarian ones. But anyway, there was, a, there was a, f- a stanza that began, that fist would drop a hammer on a Catholic. Oh yes, that kind of thing could start again. The only Roman collar he tolerates, smiles all around his sleek pint of porter. So in a coarse enough way I was entered, you know, at eye level with the usual realities. As the 70s went on, as the violence became less a secret of the psyche and more a fact of the journals and the, and the streets, everybody felt the pressure to answer. So in the 70s, it, it called out. And in a way, all, all along, I suppose, I was trying to find ways to address it. Some poems were public. I suppose elegies were public. But quite often, the political content, if as such, is there in a roundabout, oblique way.
1: We were talking about politics and political subtext and what may or may not be apolitical, but sometimes if there is a political subtext, it's buried very, very deeply, and you've referred to that in the case of Death of a Naturalist. For example, what was your intent in the translation from the Middle Irish that became Sweeney Astray*? You mentioned this in... uh, Uh, finders keepers for example
2: yeah well there were a couple of reasons first of all finders keepers not big burn, Sweeney is straight came about as a job I invented for myself I left Belfast in 1972 I resigned my job in Queens we lived in Wicklow for four years I was going to go freelance for the first time not have a job, a condition that I wasn't used to luckily so I thought I I better give myself a task and I had come upon wee bits of this Sweeney uh, stuff here and there. And I thought i will have a go with that. And I pr- provided myself with a parallel text, the Early Aries Text Society. So the first reason was really to give myself a job. So at the end of a year, if I'd done nothing else, I would have done this thing. It was after Thomas Kinsta's high example of doing the toy. And uh, so, so there was that precedent. But I was interested, I mean, I thought uh, there was a certain amount of identification or inflation, self-inflation going on, because Sweeney is somebody from um, Dalhari, uh, County, County Antrim, County Down. He's sprung out of his usual life by violence at the Battle of Moira, the Battle of Moira. He, he becomes outside the thing. He lives in the trees. He's at the edge of things. And uh, I, um, I thought, okay, I've now sprung out to the edge. I'm living among the trees. And that was another thing about the Sweeney material. It allowed you to write about trees, vegetation, watercress, and watercress, and watercress (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) But it it, uh, it has a terrific amount of delicious nature poetry in it. But then it is true that I thought to myself at that particular time, Protestant and Catholic, those words, were were we were attempting to replace them with ideas of different traditions, different heritages, and so on. I thought, if I translated Sweeney and put in the contemporary place names, I mean, battle instead of the Battle of Moira, say the Battle of Moira. Instead of saying uh, Dun Dunseverick or whatever, say Dunseverick. This in in the first Ulster acoustic now in the in the Ulster language, Northern Ireland language, Northern Ireland political acoustic. Words like Dunseverick, Moira, even more... Uh, But more and more and more question marky lagin, they they belong within the planter tradition. You know they have been planted, so I thought that if you got a a text, shall we say, that belonged to the pre-plantation world, that it could subvert the sense of ownership in the Unionist uh, imagination if they read it, Uh, (laughs) and that. And that, likewise, you know, well, it, it it would it would say that everybody belongs on this ground, you know, and there, there's space for everybody. It, is, it would assert the under the underlife of the Irish, the Primal Guilt Act, as Montague called it. John Montague talked about. Says if you live in Ireland anywhere, live in a in, in a townland with an Irish name, you're living in the Primal Guilt Act. So just to say, in the 1970s, that there were ways other people had rights here on the ground you know, before the plantation.
1: In the essay Feeling Into Words, which I think is a wonderful title, you talk about poetry as divination. Is that what you are? Are you a diviner? Do you possess powers that you
2: don't (laughs) understand? Well, I didn't didn't mean to go as far as that, no. But my father uh, worked at the divining. And I I remember seeing uh, another man divining for water on our land when I was a youngster. I took it. Absolutely for granted. I mean, it was a magic, strange thing that the stick twitched and so on. Nowadays, I'd wonder why, but, but then I took it as, as a reality. And it seemed to me that that sensing of something underground, underground life, the, the analogy for the little twitch of excitement that you get when you remember something that you've forgotten, that you've known, that wakened you up to write something, that was analogy for that. It's also true, yes, that I think artists, writers, everybody has an intuition about uh, something about to happen. I mean, every now and again you have an intuition. You don't quite know what it means, but it... Uh, there's
1: water around somewhere. There's
2: water around somewhere, and uh, that is, that's that's tr- that's really a, a moment of change in, in your consciousness, and it, it can be transmitted uh, by writing or images or sounds or something. There comes a moment when... People are ready to hear something and somebody hears it and says it. So that's a, that's a, a divination factor, I think.
1: In the poem, The Diviner, people without the gift yeah. can divine yeah. when he lays hands yes. on them. So can we take that, therefore, as a metaphor for your approval of creative writing courses?
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> What do you I think was, of them? I wasn't thinking of creative writing courses, but I was thinking... I mean, about, I know I'm taking... It's I, a metaphor I know too no, far. No, no, no. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of reading. I mean, that, when Hopkins uh, transmitted... Uh, he, when he put his hands as it were on my wrists, I felt the twitch. Creative writing courses, I, I agree. I, I have been lucky in my life to meet uh, several great people and great writers that I admired. The adjective "great" always makes everybody uneasy, but you recognise. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I I met Ted Hughes, whom you mentioned in your introduction. He had a kind of powerful transmission of a sense of certitude, intuition, and wisdom. In a different kind of, a more hectic, highly uh, intellectualized, uh, more more elevated, more self-dramatizing way, Robert Lowell, the poet Robert Lowell had that. In a different way, completely quiet, and like your aunt with a handbag, but your aunt with the gifts of a Sybil, there was Elizabeth Bishop, a poet. These people, we never really, t- well, with Lowell, you couldn't talk about anything else about poetry, but with Elizabeth and with Ted, very little, not much talk about poetry per se, but a sense of, if you're in discourse with this person on an equal footing, that something was being confirmed, you know? Now, I do believe that creative writing courses can work in two ways. They can work just by the adjacency of the people in the course to the instructor or the leader of the course, if the leader of the course is somebody they sort of like. Nothing much can happen unless there's some form of compatibility, at least, you know? It, it, it's an energy flow, among other things. So, so there's the, the sense of confirmation of being of homeopathic help coming from the other person. And then secondly, there's the technical chat. You can talk about the stuff and talk about this. That's fine, that's reassuring too, but in a sense, it's an excuse for the homeopathic action, I think.
1: Just to get back briefly to the poetic voice, you wrote in the introduction to your translation of the old English epic poem Beowulf that you
2: considered it part of my voice right in what sense well I suppose that that was a a a phrase that came to me when I was writing the introduction which I'm happy to say I wrote swiftly but (laughs) it I meant old it's old English it's a way away as far away as Latin you know it's also English as opposed to Irish Uh, I mean it belonged on the other island but there was something about the emphasis in the actual speech. There was something about the way I heard it uh, that I felt at home with. We are and you are Dagum. Something thrum you from Boom, boom, boom. Uh, very early on, when I was making up a myth for myself and that in the feeling into words thing, I, I had quoted W. R. Rogers. He says, "Are my people?" He meant the Northern accent people, and even though. Rogers was Presbyterian minister, and myself, I, there was no. Well, there was a wee touch of Presbyterianism in my background. My great grandmother was a Robinson who turned, but, <laughs> but as far as we we're concerned, she turned in the right direction. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, what I mean is phonetics. To put it in another way, phonetics bring people together in Northern Ireland. You know. Both Protestants and Catholics can pronounce certain things that nobody else would think of. They can say a hochel, you know, <laughs> or Portland, no and they can say "och, och." Uh, these are small things, but they're intimate and deep things. So the, another intimate and deep thing is that sense of, of a heavily stressed accent. Uh, when Roger said, my people, our uh, people who like the K and T in orchestra detect sin and sinfonia, Get a get a kick out of tin cans, fricatives, anything that gives or takes a tack, like something, something, something. Vatican <laughs> <laughs> tickers gets Vatican. <laughs> so that kind of dum, 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 that kind of stress language was uh, part of the the voice right, not birthright, but voice mm. right. Now,
1: 1995 saw you winning the Nobel Prize for Literature and joining the the, the Irish pantheon, which includes Shaw, Yeats. And Beckett, was, was making the laureate's speech one of the proudest moments of your life?
2: It was an anxious moment. <laughs> uh, uh, it, of course, uh, the letter that comes says, you know, here's the good news, you've got this Here's the bad news, you have to give a lecture. Uh, I was lucky to read the previous uh, winner's lecture. He, it was Kinzaburo Oe, a Japanese novelist. And he, d- he did a lecture... That was very sensible, he said, he said to the people in the, in the audience in, in, in the academy lecture hall in, in Sweden, look, you don't know that much about me, I'm from a small island off Japan, I'll tell you about my background and why I started to write. Instead of t- speaking out about the human condition and coming out with majestic, thunderous, prophetic voices, he began, and I, be- I, I was very grateful for that help, that's where I began myself. I actually, in the end, enjoyed giving the lecture because I had done it quickly and it, it seemed to be honest and true and uh, it, uh, got it got it right. And so, so I, I like that. The moment of the lecture is one thing, the moment of being on the platform on the day with orchestras and uh, choirs behind you, with uh, you know, kings and queens around you, with sweetly enough your own family out in front of you, It's good, and friends and uh, you know that, that's good and you know the enemies are around there somewhere too listening <laughs> <laughs> and the, so that's that's all fine that was terrific yeah
1: you said in an interview that a nobel i quote blesses the art of poetry now yeats says that he spent the year after his award just answering letters
2: how did you avoid the distraction oh i didn't avoid the distraction but i had spent most of my life before that answering letters so <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> there's no doubt that it creates an enormous burden of invitation and, uh, you know, obligation to to respond even to those things. It, there's a slight element of office about it, you know, uh, and I think there has to be slightly attended to, but not greatly attended to. You have to dodge it. My my, my ideal uh, man in that area is uh, Saul Bellow. The great thing is. Saul Bell is a wonderful writer and so on. People have forgotten he had anything to do with the Nobel Prize and he's still to the fore. So that's the ideal thing, people forget about it.
1: <laughs> Most recently you've adapted Sophocles' Antigone for the Abbey Theatre as the burial at Thebes. Do, do you see Antigone, that character, as a subversive or a devoted sister?
2: Well, she's both. And shes uh, you can't quite take her on her own because she, she's part of... Sophocles' ways of thinking about reality. I mean, Antigone is there, the woman who rebels against authority, the civil rights activist, the prisoner of conscience—all that is good, rebellious, and uh, true to that which is repressed. You know, but also there is Creon, and uh, Creon is the king, uh, the leader, the guy who has to responsible for good order in the city, uh, for uh, I translated it, not as the state, which is a kind of modern post-Hegelian word, but I used a phrase, I stole a thing from uh, uh, Brian Friel's play, Making History, where there's a dialogue between uh, Hugh O'Neill, I think, and uh, I've forgotten who else, maybe the Cardinal is writing his history, and Hugh O'Neill says, we're talking here about the overall thing, in, in Brian Friel's text, the overall thing has to be taken care of, order, uh, decency, in the state, uh, we can't have everybody creating their own laws and so on. There has to be some rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so, and Antig- what's deeply interesting about the play Antigone is the truth of both both positions, you know. And the tragedy comes when both people are, have a strong sense of honour. Antigone's sense of honour is what she proclaims most, uh, but and and uh, Creon thinks. He is called upon to run this thing right, and he can't have this. Now, the problem for both of them is they both then go very far. But Crayon is more reprehensible, I suppose, in the end. But he is wrecked. Uh, At the moment, I've said this before, it's obvious. The likes of Bush, who is doing to the American electorate and to most other uh, countries uh, I- in the world saying, "If you're not for me, you're against me. If you d- if you if you don't entirely if you don't entirely support me, you are actually on the side of terror and the war on terror." Uh, and so, so there's a kind of gagging uh, mechanism put on people, and that happens to the chorus in the, in Antigone. Uh, they are told, "Look, do you support the traitor or do you not?" And they can't really say to them, "Oh, well, you do support the traitor, you know." <laughs> yeah. Antigone, on the other hand, says there are other ways of looking at this. There's conscience, there's the, there's the right, the sacred rights. And actually, I, I called it the burial at Thebes because if you say Antigone nowadays, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the play in Ireland and elsewhere. And people immediately have ways of thinking state versus individual, state security versus human rights, women versus men, the patriarchy versus uh, women's rights and so on. So, So if you say the audience and they immediately think, ah oh, yeah, 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 I know all that. Burial the burial of Thebes I would hope reminds us that the play is about sacred rights, both R I G H T and R I T E. And that in I mean within our acoustic the word burial still calls up on something that is solemn and people have a right to. And it, it indicates the theme of the play outside of state versus individual, that what they call the gods the God's law versus the state's law. And that's, that's, that's what's going on in it.
1: Now, in an essay that you wrote on the IRA ceasefire in 1994, you referred to that ceasefire as a space where hope can grow. Do you think in the 10 years since that that hope has almost been extinguished?
2: Oh, I don't think so, not at all. I mean, I think that the, however crumbling the institutions have continued to be, there has been a space and what has been important in the space is that we haven't had extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. We have had the usuals doing the usual messy things, but they've, they've held on to some kind of workability factor in, in, in uh, e- even the assembly suspended and all as it is, even with, you know, the DUP refusing to sit with, uh, with uh, Sinn Féin and all the kind of petty... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quality to it all. The usual smallness of mind is a preferable to the unusual atrociousness of what was going on. And and I don't. I I do think that the republican movement made a terrific change. And uh, the the fact that we now speak of the Rail IRA as somebody outside outside the pale uh, is. I mean that the conditions have changed and. Uh, if you think of Paisley's uh, party, what what they are now—they've talked to Bertie here. I think there has been a meeting. You you can't hope. I mean, let's let's face it. You can't hope for very much. <laughs> in the best of conditions, but the the situation in the north is hopeable, for, certainly. You know, I can't see it. I can't see it going back to what it was in the mid 80s, late. The early nineties. Remember the bombings and savagery and viciousness of that. So I don't hope for much. Therefore, my hope is uh, is firm enough.
1: To conclude with some general comments on poetry, when you were on Desert Island Discs, you chose Ulysses of the novel that you would take with you onto the yeah. Desert Island. You probably weren't given the option of choosing which book of poetry you would take with you, so I'm now giving you that option. What book of poetry would you take onto the Desert Island with you?
2: I might take a book called Rattlebag. It's <laughs> <laughs>
1: Excellent choice.
2: It, yeah. It, it hasn't one poem of my own in it, but it's got wonderful stuff,
1: high and low. And would keep you entertained for a long time. Poetry has such a small audience that the poet Simon Armitage has described the writing of poetry as akin to shouting down the lavatory. (laughs) That's what he said. His words, not mine. Would you share that view at all?
2: No. uh, (laughs) I think it's more like pulling the flush and listening to the... (laughs) No, no. I, it's one of the sweetest melodies in the world. It's really the rush of water. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which you have described uh, on occasions. No, uh, I do believe there is an audience. I've always said it. There, I mean, it's, it's, it's the fact of the matter. The audience for poetry is usually smallish. The potential public for it is, is very large. Uh, some people, uh, for different reasons, uh, uh, transmit from... They get an audience, and then then, then, the big, then they get what Wordsworth called a public, you know. And Robert Frost in America was a poet who had an audience. People knew how good he was, but he had a public who also relished him. Wallace Stevens, a great American poet, had an audience, but I guess he never had a public. Hopkins didn't have a public. He had an audience of about ten. But that the audience is very, very important. The audience listens and knows. And gives you back something you can trust. Uh, the public gives you uh, a reward of uh, of attention, and uh, you know it's it's a different kind of uh, of salute. But I, I would I think if you think of the, over the last 60, 40, 50 years, people like Allen Ginsberg, uh, Ted Hughes, Philip Larkin, Elizabeth Bishop, Adrienne Rich in America, Ivan Boland here. Paul Durkin, Ben Kennelly, I mean, there's a, there's a reach.
1: Do you have mixed feelings about the inclusion of your poetry on the Leaving Certificate syllabus?
2: I don't know. I I was, I, I would have mixed feelings if there weren't other tradition, I mean, if if it entirely went to contemporary work, you know. Um, I came to poetry through teaching, through reading school books. I mean, I remember Kavanaugh somewhere talks about school book poetry, as uh, to, qu- to quote another uh, dairy uh, writer, scorn not its simplicity. You know? <laughs> 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 it's it's a way it's a way of keeping the covenant between the generations alive. To to be taught poetry at school, it's a way of uh, people have something in common, and if there's something in common, relates to their lives in their own culture all the better. I think think it's good to have contemporary poetry on, but I I do believe that traditional poetry from the canon should also be there too. I'd be uneasy if there was no know, on it as well. But the the teaching of poetry by teachers to to students, that's that's a precious thing. And uh, you're lucky if you have good teachers teaching your poems to, to students.
1: Every poet seems to have had bizarre experiences at poetry readings.
2: Have you? I had a bizarre experience after a poetry reading once. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there's always somebody that you know is going to wait to the end of the queue to try to talk to you. <laughs> and maybe... land. <laughs> this, this was in the, in the Old Earls Court uh, Poetry Society numbered, uh, in England, in London, all way back. Must have been the 70s, early 70s. I saw this guy standing, uh, and the one who was standing, not sitting, watching me as I read at eye level. And then he he lurked during the signing of the books. And then as we were headed for the door, he was at the door. And he said, a wild-eyed character. He said, hello. He said, would you like to go to dinner? (laughs) I said, well, I know we're going to dinner as we were. Oh, he said, well, I I was hoping you might go with me. I'm R.D. Lang." And I, and, I, and I said, well, actually, no, we're, we're we're busy. We're 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 going. We're like, okay, thanks. All right. So I went on. And I said, I suppose all of Lang's patients think they're R D Lang. And this guy said, no, no, no. I said that was R D Lang. <laughs> <laughs> maybe bizarre isn't. Maybe bizarre isn't the right word for it. It's just a mistake.
1: Finally, in one poem, W. B. Yeats described himself as a sixty-year-old smiling public man. As you approach sixty-five, how would you describe yourself?
2: I would. You, I would go to Joyce. <laughs> I remember Stephen Dedalus when he uh, was in Clongowes. He wrote uh, as all kids wrote in their books in those days. Uh, Stephen Stephen Dedalus, Class of Elements, Clongowes College, Salons, County kind of Kildare, Ireland, Shemsi. Uh, County Derry, County Wakelow, Dublin, Ireland, uh, Europe, the world, uh, the rattlebag. Seamus
1: Heaney, thank you very much and happy birthday. Thanks very much.
0: And in that edition of Creatives in Conversation, you heard Seamus Heaney speaking to Miles Dungan in a rattlebag public interview recorded at the Pavilion Theatre in Dun in 2004. On sound were Martin Moran and Tony Lyons and Kevin Reynolds produced drama on one sundays at 8 p.m rte.ie forward slash drama on one drama on one